0: Okay, good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. It's really good to see you here. Thank you for giving up your lunch, if that's what you've done. We'll try not to listen to the rumbling tums. I've just had a biscuit in case. Um, so, this is a women writing history session, and we've set up a really interesting, I hope you'll enjoy it, set here, with all sorts of different contributions. And we're going to run through this whole thing, and then we'll have an opportunity at the end for you to... Uh, give us your opinions or to discuss with our speakers. So uh, we're going to have um, not just uh, people on the platform here speaking but also some readings uh, from LSE students and these are mostly related because we're celebrating this year uh, becoming the owners of the Women's Library at LSE. These are celebratory readings in a way because they're to do with women's rights and uh, our selections of things from the Women's Library and from LSE's own collections. So, uh, I don't want to spend too much time uh, going on about that. Maybe we'll get on to that later. But the way we're going to do it is to have a reading first from a student. I'm going to just give you a quick run-through of how the program will go, then you'll see how it develops. A reading from a student, and then Molly Crabapple, who's a New York artist, um, and uh, who's done all manner of interesting projects. Her most recent project has been A Week in Hell, in which she locked herself in a hotel room covered the walls in paper and filled 270 square feet of wall with art. Good. Okay, so she's (laughs) going to submit next. How big was the bill? (laughs) And she's going to show some pictures too. Um, And then we're going to have another reading from a student. And at each point, the student will let you know what they're reading from. Um, And then Professor Mary Evans, who some of you will know, who's attached to our Gender Institute, uh, is going to speak too. Um, and she's our LSE Centennial professor. Um, then uh, we will have uh, Kate Moss who's a novelist. I hope some of you have uh, read some of her work. Um, I'm reading one now um, and she's going to uh, talk to us for a while. She's uh, <laughs> <laughs> a <phary>. sounds whippping. <laughs> we we're, we're discussing these wiles and, and while we started off with five to ten minutes I'm going to be allowing a little leeway that's why I'm saying while. <laughs> so um, Kate if you haven't read her books is, is a very very successful author um, and she laughed at me wearing an orange suit because she was honorary director of the orange prize for fiction so I'm wearing this in her honour but it's now called the women's prize for fiction so mm. that's good We'll then have an, another reading and another reading and then Vicky Featherstone, um, who is the person just closest to me here, um, will also be speaking. She's just got a really exciting new job, which is uh, to work at the Royal Court Theatre as artistic director and has a very great CV behind her in terms of working in the National Theatre of Scotland. So, I hope you'll enjoy this session. I I think it's fixed to be really good and we'll give you some opportunity, as I say, to to speak later. But we're going to start uh, first off with a student.
1: Hello, my name is Luca Weiner. I'm an international relations master student here at the LSE. And I'm going to be reading first from Mary Willinson's Crafts, A Vindication of the Rights of Women. My own sex, I hope, will excuse me if I treat them like rational creatures, instead of flattering their fascinating graces and viewing them as if they were in a state of perpetual childhood, unable to stand alone. I'll now read from my second excerpt by Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own. When, however, one reads of a witch being ducked, of a woman possessed by the devils, of a wise woman selling herbs, or even of a very remarkable man who had a mother, then I think that we're on the track of a lost novelist, a suppressed poet, of some mute and inglorious Jane Austen, some Emily Bronte who dashed her brains out on the moor or mocked and mowed about the highways, crazed with the torture that her gift had put her to. Indeed, I would venture that Anonymous, who wrote so many poems without signing them, was often a woman. Thank you.
2: Hey, I'm Molly. When a woman looks for her forebearers in European art history, she sees a void. There are great female artists, of course. There's Tamara Delempica, the queen of Art Deco. There's Artemisia Gentileschi. There's Camille Claudel sculpting all the hands of her lover Rodin's sculptures before being institutionalized for 40 years for the crime of being a woman and an artist. There are the child paintings of Marie Cassatt. But the canon of Western women's art is nothing compared to the canon of Western women's writing. André Lorde says that of all art forms, poetry is the most economical. It is the one that is most secret, that requires the least physical labor, the least material, that can be done between shifts, in the hospital pantry, on the subway, on scraps of surplus paper. If a writer needs only a room of one's own, an artist needs years of training, naked models, a studio, canvas, paints, startup capital, and a world that lets them be grubby and feral and alone. Growing up, the women in art history who inspired me were models and performers. Victorine Morant, La Goulou, sexy, tough, working-class women, often sex workers, they were the opposites of the genteel girls who learned flower painting, along with embroidery and the piano. They were self-created, flamboyant, glamorous, using themselves as their raw materials in a world that would give them nothing else. I too worked as an artist's model. For an artist, the job is a paradox. You're clay for someone else's creation, while longing for clay of your own. Of all the women who street fought their way into the canon, my favorite, and probably the most popular, is Frida Kahlo. Frida and her husband Diego were the golden couple of 1930s Mexico. Brilliant, famous, larger than life, they became concepts as much as people, and concepts that illustrated with unusual neatness ideas of what man's art and women's art should be. Diego was Mexico's greatest muralist. He was the classic god monster of modernism, amoral, all-creating, all-consuming, all-destroying. He worked in fresco, a medium so demanding that if your plaster dries a little bit too much, you have to chip off the day's work and start again. His Palacio Nacional took six years. He was obese and looked like a frog, and from the scaffolding, he shot guns at people who came to protest his work. He slept with half of North America, (laughs) <laughs> His paintings are about giant themes, war, communism, industry, Mexico. If there is macho art in scale, in scope, and in swagger, it is the art of Diego Rivera. Frida was small and beautiful and dressed like a Tijuana Indian. When she was a teenager, her back was broken and her pelvis were impaled in a streetcar accident, and she spent much of the following years on operating tables. Frida painted small and exquisite self-portraits in the Mexican retablo tradition about sex and love, disability and pain, her relationship with Diego, her relationship with Mexico. Her work is unsentimental and lacerating. Frida was the type who would look at a disemboweled body unflinchingly, even if it was her own. André Breton called it a ribbon wrapped around a bomb. The Communist Party considered easel paintings as opposed to murals bourgeois because they could only have one owner. But in 2012, Frida's is the truly populist art. They're the perfect paintings for the Tumblr age, infinitely reproducible emotion, whereas to understand a mural, you have to go there. Of course, concepts are simple, people not so much, Diego Rivera made his own ass the centerpiece of his mural at the San Francisco Art Institute, and Frida Kahlo was so passionately devoted to communism that she died under a picture of Stalin. But history reads them along gendered lines. Diego is masculine, intellectual, universal. Frida is feminine, emotional, and personal. Women's art gets to be about sex and love, the body and pain. Men's art gets to do that, but also be about everything else in the entire world. When women paint themselves, it's seen as narcissistic. When men paint themselves, it's the human experience. (laughs) Autobiographical essays by women are confessional and TMI. Our photographic self-portraits are selfies. A male artist friend of mine once complained about hot girls drawing naked pictures of themselves. He said it was cheap and easy. I said it was owning the means of production. That's my work, by the way. We live in the freest time for a woman to be an artist, but the path that we should follow is clear. We should endlessly dissect ourselves, our love lives and our cellulite, our vaginas and our hearts. In my own work, I looked outwards. What's called the male gaze is equally an artist's gaze, consuming, rapacious, turning humans into objects. The man leering on the street corner is not too different from me when I want to draw a hot journalist in my sketchbook. I've drawn myself a half-dozen times, and it never ceases to be jarring. Why look in the mirror when you can stare at everyone else? I've done several murals. In London, you can see them at the Box Nightclub and the Groucho Club. Mural work is art at its most blue-collar and most sublime, one-half carpentry and one-half metaphysics. You're exhausted and filthy, wobbling on a rickety platform, but you're creating a world, and anyone who steps into that room has to do it on your terms. When I do murals, I feel as if I'm John Henry, racing the steam engine through a mountain, that if I die, it will be with a paintbrush in my hand. Last year, I started doing giant paintings about the revolutions of 2011, of which this is one. I was inspired by Diego Rivera. If I had something to say to women and to artists, it's this that we must explore the radical possibilities of facing outwards. We must take up space and we must be big. I want to show you the work of two artists who because of their scope, because of their populist idiom, and because of their scale, I see as the heirs to Diego Rivera. Carol Walker is an African American artist who does old school black and white paper cutout silhouettes on massive scale filling rooms that explore the grotesqueries and horrors of slavery. Swoon is a New York-based street artist. She makes giant, graceful woodblock prints about average working people and risks arrest over and over again, wheat-pasting them in abandoned buildings in some of the poorest parts of the world. She also builds earthquake-proof homes in Haiti, designs art centers in New Orleans, and once gathered all of her gutter-punk friends to sail a flotilla built out of garbage from Croatia and lay siege on the Venice Biennale. The art of love and pain is powerful, but it's not the only art there is. I want to see more men who paint like Frida Kahlo, and I want to see more women who paint like Diego Rivera. Thank you.
3: My name is Fai Sudmahat Angoon. I'll be reading a passage from Persuasion by Jane Austen. No, replied Anne in a low feeling voice that I can easily believe. It was not in her nature she doted on him it would not be the nature of any woman who truly loved. Captain Harrow smiled as much as to say, do you claim that for your sex? She answered the question, smiling also, yes, we certainly do not forget you as soon as you forget us. It is perhaps our fate rather than our merit. We cannot help ourselves. We live at home, quiet, confined, and our feelings prey upon us. You are forced on exertion. You have always a profession, pursued, business of some sort or other, to take you back into the world immediately, and continual and continue occupation and change soon weakens impressions. Granting your assertion that the world does all this so soon for men, which, however, I do not think I shall grant, it does not apply to Benwick. He has not been forced upon any exertion. The peace turned him on shore at the very moment, and he has been living with us in our little family circle ever since. True, said Anne, very true. I did not recollect, but what shall we say now, Captain Harville? if the change be not from outward circumstances, it must be from within. It must be nature, man's nature, which has done the business for Captain Menwick. No, no, it is not man's nature. I would not allow it to be more man's nature than woman's, to be inconstant and forget those they do love or have loved. I believe the reverse. I believe that I believe in a true analogy between our bodily frames and our mental, and that as our bodies are the strongest, so are our feelings, capable of bearing most rough usage and riding out the heaviest ra- weather. Your feelings may be the strongest," replied Anne but the same spirits of analogy will authorize me to assert that ours are the most tender. Man is more robust than woman, but he is not longer lived, which exactly explains my view of the nature of their attachments. Nay, it would be too hard upon you if it were otherwise. You have difficulties and privations and dangers enough to struggle with. You are always laboring and toiling exposed to every risk and hardship, your home, country, friends, all quitted, neither time nor health nor life to be called your own. It would be hard indeed, with faltering voice, if woman's feeling were to be added to all this. We should never agree upon this question, Captain Harville was beginning to say, when a slight noise called their attention to Captain Wensworth's, he heard a perfectly quiet division of the room. It was nothing more than that his pen had fallen down, but Anne was startled at finding him nearer than she had supposed, and half inclined to suspect that the pen had only fallen because he had been occupied by them, striving to catch, words, striving to catch sounds, which yet she did not think he could have caught. Have you finished your letter, said Captain Harville. Not quite. A few lines more. I shall have done in five minutes. There's no hurry on my side. I'm only ready whenever you are. I am in a very good anchorage here, smiling at Anne. Well supplied and one for nothing. No hurry for a signal at all. Well, Miss Elliot, lowering his voice. As I was saying, we shall never agree, I suppose, upon this point. No man and woman would probably. But let me observe that all histories are against you. All stories, prose and verse. Pros. If I had such a memory of Benwick, I could bring you 50 quotations in a moment on my side of the argument. And I do not, and I do not think I ever opened a book in my life which had not something to say upon women's inconstancy. Songs and proverbs all talk of women's fickleness. But perhaps you say, these were all written by men. Perhaps I shall. Yes, yes, if you please. No reference to examples in books. Men have had every advantage of us in telling their own story. Education has been theirs in so much higher degree. The pen has been in their hands. I will not allow books to prove anything. Mm-hmm. That was Jane Austen. persuasion. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much indeed for that reading. Um, and let me put you out of your agony straight away and tell you that in the following few pages, Anne Elliot and Captain Wentworth recover their relationship and everything ends really happily. So <laughs> I do want to let you know it's all perfectly all right in the end. But I want to pick up some of the things that I think are the implications of what Austin is saying in that passage. And in some ways, I I hope to say some things which perhaps could interrupt easy readings of what Austen is saying. First of all, I want to take that sentence that Austen famously uses, the pen is in your hands, when she's talking about the apparent dominance of men in fiction. Austen knows perfectly well when she's writing that, that the pen is actually in her hands. And anybody who thinks they're going to take away that pen is very much mistaken. She has a very, very strong sense of the passionate ownership which it is possible for women to have of fiction, and not just fiction, but the imagination in general. So I think what she's doing in putting out that idea of this idea of one gender-owning fiction is to ask readers immediately to interrogate that idea, to say, no, that's not right, because we actually have your example in front of us. She's asking us to ask questions. What I would also say about that passage which was read out is that it is, to me, a wonderful passage because in those two pages, it seems to me that Austen, in 1817, covers much of the history of feminist theory. She talks about essentialism, she talks about the gendered nature of effect, she talks about power, she talks about most of the issues that have actually dominated the tradition of feminist history and politics over the last 200 years. So when we think about writing history then, I think we have to think about the ways in which the past obviously is 200 years ago, 300 years ago, but the past is also the present, and Austen's perception of relations between the genders is as much alive today as it was in 1817. What I also think she does very much in that passage, and indeed in her fiction generally, is something which it's very important to do, and for women to do, in writing history. That is, she plays with risk. She sets up in all her novels the possibility of things not turning out right. Let me take the example of Pride and Prejudice. Just suppose that Darcy had not taken it into his head to go home for the weekend, the very precise weekend, note, that Elizabeth Bennet was going to be at Pemberley. There would have been no chance meeting, let alone a plunge into the pond, as in 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 the serial version... Um, of the novel, it would not have turned out right. And that's the kind of cliff edge that Austen proposes to us for history, for relations between women and men across centuries. It's not necessary that things are going to turn out right and happily, but it is the case that those relationships are always going to be negotiated and discussed. And the ways that it could have gone, better or worse, are always about how genders possess power. And I think, again, what Austen is doing in that passage, which was so beautifully read out, is to talk about the ways in which, in thinking about women writing history, women possessing the imagination, she's also asking to think about the idea that nobody actually does possess power. Power is fluid. Power is a dynamic. Power is something that people exchange, think about, discuss with each other, and that's very much the idea which I think she is pursuing. So conversation is the absolute key to her work, and I think it's that conversation of gender which is so important to Austin's work, and indeed to the much more general question um, of how to write a history, which gives a sense... To that dynamic. So what she does with owning her pen, as she very much does, and I think as she very much knows that she is, she takes that pen and she uses it to really ruthless effect. She challenges the greedy, she challenges the callous greed of the rich, she challenges the legitimacy of the church, she takes on a number of institutions, a number of conditions of being in the world which are just as much relevant today as they were 200 years ago. And this is, it seems to me, very fundamental to how women have to write history and indeed, in a general sense, how history might be written. Not in a sense of secure endings. It's always the possibility, as I said, that things might not work out, that the right people might not come out ahead, that there might not be victories. And it's disturbing that notion of progress, of achievement, of ticking boxes, ticking boxes through history. We've done this, we've achieved that, we've got to that point. That I think she is asking us to consider. She's asking us to consider the risks of being alive and indeed having ideas that we want to discuss, that we want to negotiate. So when she says right at the very end of that passage, I will not allow books to prove anything. It seems to me that that's a very subversive idea because she knows very well that in many cases to the victors go the spoils that the pen does very much, very often, belong to the most powerful. But also what she knows about those victors' spoils is that those spoils also speak of absence and of secrecy and of what is not said. So that in fiction, Austen allows herself a space... For writing out those alternatives, for writing out those secrets of history, for writing out those conversations about power, which are not always part of the historical record. And the more it seems to me that we want history to be about achieved facts, to be about where we have got to, to be more about the boxes that we have tipped off, the more it seems to me that we need to reread those passages to rethink the ideas about the possibilities and the risks of history and the risks, indeed, that women can take with writing history. Let's write a history which actually does leave open the possibilities of things perhaps going wrong. So thank you.
5: Um, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Kate Moss, and I'm a working writer, a novelist, who uh, makes her living from doing that, and also from supporting other women's writing um, in the form of a literary prize called the uh, Women's Prize for Fiction. It was the Orange Prize for Fiction until last year, and it will be something else in a couple of weeks' time uh, (laughs) for going forward. Um, But I'm just going to talk with those two different hats on, and in a way not... At all uh, in contradiction to some of the things that we've said, but very much about what every single one of us can do to make sure that women's creativity sits as universal and central to the canon, whether it's in literature or theatre or dance or painting or sculpture, rather than exactly as you said right at the beginning, Molly, the idea that there is such a thing as universal art, which is almost always a certain sort of male art and dialectic, and that women's art is other from that. And the truth is that I don't think things have changed so very much from when I was a student in the 80s and sat in lecture halls and listened to the way that language was being talked about and the way that the literary canon was made. And the reason that I think it's important that we all acknowledge how reputations are made and kept and that means how books stay on the shelf for people in the future to read them, how pieces of theatre get repeated and put on and reinterpreted so that people in the future get to see them, how works of art get put into art galleries so people all over the world get to see them, is not an accident. It isn't a fluid thing, it is a very straightforward choice, it's always a choice. And all of us can make that choice all of the time, that when we see an exhibition, for example, where there is not a single woman there, we can write to the curator and say, is that a deliberate choice? Or did you just not notice? (laughs) And that sounds rather (laughs) flippant. But when we were launching the Women's Prize for Fiction, um, the spur for that was in 1991, there was a Booker Prize shortlist that had no women on it at all. It was a year when the very great Angela Carter had a book eligible, the very great Peggy Atwood had a book eligible, and many other great writers. So there wasn't even a sense that possibly there was a, a scarcity of the, of the writing at the top level in that particular year. But quotas, we could argue about those all day, but in art they are very difficult to pursue because art should be above gender. It should be about excellence and brilliance and inspiration. So the judges had chosen the six books that they considered were the best books of the year. But they had not noticed that there were no women on it at all. And when it was pointed out in the newspapers that there there were no women, there really was this sense of, blimey, who'd have thought it? (laughs)
2: And
5: um, What we all started to do, people who worked in publishing, men and women, who worked as agents, as librarians, as booksellers, as writers, as journalists just said, try to imagine what would have happened if a, a short list of all women had been put out. Would it have been seen as a legitimate choice of the judges or would it have been interpreted as a deliberate political act? Neither of the things, these things can be proven either way, but truthfully, almost always, if you just flip it on its head, you start to see the reality of how choices is made and how reputations are made. So we gathered together a group of people, about 40 people, to decide what should be done. And we asked ourselves a series of questions. Does it matter, we said, that there are no women on this list? Do prices matter? What are they for? Maybe they're just a specious way of, you know, a sort of slightly upmarket beauty competition. And as the conversation went on, in the end we decided that it did matter that there were no women on the list at all, because it was not... A representative potentially of the books that were published, but more important, um, prizes sell books. And nowadays, if your book does not sell, it will not be on the shelf probably in six months' time. Which means that readers in the future will not be able to discover great works because they will have gone. So prizes matter enormously about the canon that we are producing for the future. They're one way that matter; others too. At the end of the discussion, we thought they. Were Nobody was complaining, and every single time I was interviewed by a journalist, um, the first question would be, I bet you are angry. Because the, the, the media story is women are angry, as opposed to men and women were asking questions about gender and reading and writing, which I understand is not such a good headline, but it was true. Um, and we came out of that thinking the best way to celebrate women's creativity is to set up a prize where the one criteria is that the books must have been written by women. The irony of that, of course, is it therefore means that the works can only be judged as works by artists. Mm. And every single person I know who is a working artist, myself included, wants to be judged as an artist, not as a woman artist, or indeed as a man artist. But sometimes, ironically, uh, by having an all-female shortlist, those writers immediately become seen as artists rather than as women in front of them. You will remember the wonderful Kate Atkinson when she won the Whitbread as it then was for um, her, her novel Behind the Seed. At the... Ellie, what was the novel called? Behind the Seed at the Museum, thank you. <laughs> yeah. She has a new novel out about two weeks time, so I had that one in my mind. But in every single newspaper cutting, if you look at it, she is described as the woman on the list. Now, she is indeed a woman, and she was the only one on that list, but her work was that of an artist. So that was one of the things that we were looking at. We decided that we would not be engaging with um, anything other than the facts. And what I mean by that is we thought that it was important to actually do some research into writing and gender and publishing and reviewing to see if the urban myths that seemed to be true actually were true. So was it the case, as the figure was always bounded about, that give or take 60% of novels published every year are written by women and some 70% of novels published every year are bought by women, but yet fewer at that stage, 1991, 10% of novels shortlisted for major literary awards by women. And we wanted to know if that was true, if the disconnect really was that great, and if so, again, how had that happened? In the end, we launched the prize to do three things to fund on the back of the razzmatazz of the prize um, a series of literacy, educational, lifelong learning um, and, I suppose, reading initiatives that would support reading at every level to all sorts of types of people, not just the sorts of people who might already be in bookshops, sitting in university lecture halls, working in bookselling, but everybody's. Making that point again that reading is the one thing that sets us all free because if you have a book and you've been taught to read wherever you are, whatever your life is like you can go somewhere else in your imagination so it is the most democratic in some ways of art films we also wanted to make the point that there was fantastic international fiction that was being for the most part ignored by literary prizes in the UK so we decided to make the prize open to any woman of any nationality provided the book was written in English, not a translation. And that has been very interesting over the past 18 years, seeing how more and more women in particular, um, from countries in the Middle East, um, from countries in Africa, they're the two areas we've seen this particularly big growth, um, have been choosing to write first and foremost in English, uh, because the market is obviously so much larger for, the, for books in English. And the third thing was to simply say that women's excellence and creativity matters and it should be cherished, and it should be visible every time. And what has happened in those years is, to start with, um, there was a lot of talk about this prize as sexist. Um, Many journalists, I'm afraid, said to me, with all seriousness, and I don't doubt their their good intentions in saying this, but would say, if women were any good, they would have won the Booker Prize. Mm -hmm. And the truth of that is just very naive. Very naive indeed. But as the prize has developed... Um, it has started to set up a canon of exceptional writing by women from all over the world. And I am still asked every single year, do we still need, in inverted commas, the prize? Well, my answer is this. Actually, yes, we do, for three reasons. We need it because we should always celebrate the best in art, wherever we find it, and keep saying, in the world that we find ourselves in, that there are things that are humanising, and link us one to the other, regardless of our experiences, and change your world. And these things matter just as much as the politics that we see on the paper or on the screen. It also matters because I would say that in some respects, and I say this as a feminist of the last generation, now in her 50s, who discovered, as it were, feminism when I was a student. In many ways, things are enormously better than they were in terms of debate about dialogue and gender and women's rights and men's rights and humanism and liberalism. But in other ways, um, they are very much worse, and I think women's positions in many countries, and indeed, I, would, I hate to say it, but the prevalence now of pornography and the way that that is changing everything about how girls and boys are looking at each other, I would say that in many ways things are worse. And to have constantly, every single year, a moment that says in many, many ways, but for us, through the Women's Prize for Fiction, you see women in the newspapers mostly now being represented as victims. You see them mostly being represented as other people's wives. When Women in Media and Women in Journalism did a survey about six months ago, they discovered that there were hardly any women ever on the front pages of any newspapers who were not either married to somebody famous or had been murdered or attacked in some way. So I'm afraid they mostly were not the novelists and the playwrights and the artists. And I think, therefore, to continually say that these are positive female role models, wonderful books about all manner of women's experience that are being read by men and by women, that that matters very much. Um, The final thing I'm going to say, I'm not going to have time to talk about myself as a novelist at all, but that's fine, because actually this is more important. Um, The final thing, though, about women writing history... It all links back to this sense of the alternative canon. The fact that there are many, many stories. And every single time a history book is written, a a choice is made about what is valued and what is not valued. And it isn't about saying, let's rip everything up. But it is about saying, continually saying, there is more to this story than meets the eye, is incredibly important. So with my own fiction, I write slices of forgotten or not very explored women's history. (coughs) and I write books about France. All of my uh, stories are adventure stories. They are not uh, what one might call literary or critically uh, literary work. They are absolutely page-turning novels that rip along with a lot of sex, a lot of swords, and sometimes some guns thrown in for good measure. But the purpose behind that is just a series. They are old-fashioned adventure stories with a twist. All of my heroes are women, and each of the books tells a story of women's history that is, for whatever reason, not visible in the books. So with Citadel, my most recent one, which is set during the Second World War in France, it was inspired by the fact that when the war was over, there was a need, as you know, in France to create a mythology of the French resistance and how French men had saved France. And consequently, many other people who were in the resistance in France have been written out there were a lot of Jewish people who stayed and fought with their French friends. There were many German pacifists and Quakers. There were many Spanish communists. There were Belgian and Dutch refugees. And there were very, very, very many women. But when the Croix de Guerre at the gold level were given out by de Gaulle, the medals at the, for exceptional valour at the top, about 1,100 were given out of those. Eleven of them went to uh, villages and towns who, who stood up together and made extraordinary sacrifices together. But seven or eight were given to women. Now I know in Carcassonne where I write about the grandparents of my friends that I talked to for writing Citadel I know 10 and that's just Carcassonne. So that is why we all should try and write different histories why women writing history and men writing history with women in it is incredibly important we are all in it together and every time you turn on the television you see the BBC year of books and then you start to notice that Fewer than a quarter of the people represented in the whole of the year of books were women. Every time you go into an art gallery and see that there are no women in the permanent private collection, every time, and Vicky will know these figures better than me, you look and you see that actually fewer than a third of the, women being, the people being commissioned to write plays in our stage in 2013 are women. You will see that there's a lot to do, but you know what? It's fun, and we can all do it, and every single one of us. Can make a difference and write a different more inclusive story where we all have a
4: voice to be listened to thank you
6: my name is cesar jimenez martinez and i'm going to read a passage of on the Subjection of women by john stuart mill The object of this essay is to explain, as clearly as I am able, grounds of an opinion which I have held from the very earliest period when I had formed any opinions at all on social political matters, and which, instead of being weakened or modified, has been constantly growing stronger by the progress reflection and the experience of life. That the principle which regulates the existing social relations between the two sexes, The legal subordination of one sex to the other is wrong itself and now one of the chief hindrances to human improvement and that it ought to be replaced by a principle of perfect equality, admitting no power or privilege on the one side, nor disability on the other. Thank you.
7: My name is Maria Paula Brito. The Second Reform Act, correspondence between Barbara Bartheson and Helen Taylor, 9th of May, 1866. My dear Madam, I am very anxious to have some conversation with you about the possibility of doing something immediately towards women voters. I should not like to start a petition or make any movement without knowing what you, and Mr. J. S. Mill, thought expedient at this time. I have only just arrived in London from Algiers, but I have already seen many ladies who are willing to take some steps for this cause. Ms. Boucherette, who is here, puts down 25 pounds at once for expenses. I shall be every day this week at this office at 3 p.m. Would you write a petition which you could bring with you? I myself should propose to try simply for what we are most likely to get. Believe me, yours truly, Barbara Ellis Bodishan.
8: My name is Stephanie Ulla, and I will be reading a letter from Helen Taylor to Barbara Budashan, um, 9th March, 1899. My dear Madam, I think that while a reform bill is under discussion, and petitions are being presented to Parliament from various classes asking for representation or protecting against disfranchisement, It is very desirable that women who wish for political enfranchisement should say so and that not women saying so will be used against them in the future and delay the time of their enfranchisement. I think also that it is utterly out of the question to to suppose that there is the slightest chance of anything whatever being now obtained, even if the most strenuous efforts were made both in and out of the House of Commons by all, both men and women, who share our opinions on the subject. When we see that the whole influence of Mr. Gladstone and Lord Russell, asserted to the utmost on a topic which has occupied the public mind for 20 years past, can hardly suffice, perhaps even yet may not suffice, to carry through a modicum of reform for men so slight, it is a mere mockery to the mass of people. I think we should only be preparing for disappointment for ourselves if we looked for any immediate success in any measure for women, however slight. But this is no reason why women should not ask for what they will never obtain till they have asked for it very long. And I think the most important thing is to make a demand and commence the first humble beginnings of an agitation for which reasons can be given that are in harmony with the political ideas of English people in general. No idea is so universally accepted and acceptable in England as that taxation and representation ought to go together. And people in general will be much more willing to listen to the assertion that single women and widows of property have been unjustly overlooked and left out from the privileges to which their property entitles them than to the much more startling general proposition that sex is not a proper ground for distinction in political rights. (laughs) It seems to me, therefore, that a petition asking for the admission to the franchise of all women holding the requisite property qualification would be highly desirable now, quite independently of any immediate results to follow from it. The only doubt is whether enough signatures could be got to prevent it from being insignificant as a demonstration on the part of women themselves. I do not think that less than 100 would be enough. Anything more than that would seem to me very satisfactory. I see no reason why the signatures should be confined to those who would profit by the plan if carried out. It would be perfectly reasonable for all women to ask for the franchise, for those among them who can fulfill the conditions at present demanded of all men, just as men who are not seven-pound householders petition in favor of the present reform. We should only be petitioning for the omission of the word male or men from the present act. Thank you.
9: Hello, Um, I'm Vicky Featherstone and I'm about to be the new artistic director of the Royal Court Theatre. Um, I have got four possibly connecting thoughts inspired by my new job and the Women's Library and a monologue for you. So make of it what you will. Number one, women in the UK are paid 22.6% less per hour than men. Women do two thirds of the world's work, yet receive 10% of the world's income and own 1% of the means of production. At least 100,000 women are raped each year in the UK, and the rape conviction rate is 6.5%. Only 18.3% of the world's members of Parliament are women. And during the 1990s, the number of men paying for sex acts in the UK doubled. As Marlene, one of the main characters of Carol Churchill's paradigm-shifting 1980s play, Top Girls at the Royal Court says, in a toast at the end of her dinner, we've come a long way to our courage and the way we changed our lives and to our extraordinary achievements. But 86 years ago, not everyone in this room would even have had the vote. Point number two. Can the arts and women's role in them have any impact against such apparently ingrained inequality? In 1908, at the Criterion Theatre Piccadilly, the Actresses' Franchise League was formed. They said... We, the undersigned, members of the Actresses' Franchise League, beg to address you as follows. While adding to the gaiety of the nation, the actresses have themselves been suffering from great wrongs arising out of sex disability. The broad, expansive view of life that the actresses' calling engenders has revealed to them the state of society in Great Britain, which they, as patriotic women, can no longer support. Debarred by sexability from the exercise of the franchise to right these wrongs, repudiated by the government of the day, unprotected by party machinery, the actresses, representing a very large and important faction of working women, do appeal to the House of Commons and ask to be allowed to stand before the bar of the House, lay before the Commons at first hand their reason for claiming equality with men in the state. With 550 members, it became a major part of the success of the suffrage movement. Between 1907 and 1914, a series of plays were written in pamphlets available for amateur companies with little or no sets and props needed to further the cause of the suffragettes. It's the first example I can find of women using theatre and plays for an overtly political purpose. It worked, we now have the vote. (laughs) The most famous of these, How the Vote Was Won, was written by Cicely Hamilton and Christopher St. John. Christopher St. John's first play was performed in 1907 at the Royal Court. Christopher St. John was a pseudonym. Her real name was Christabel Marshall. That was in the early 1900s. Thought three there is a paradox for women in the arts. It is the area between the public and the private, the right to create art free of prejudice and expectation versus the need to contextualize and compete for consideration in a crowded, male dominated arena. For each piece not to have to define womanhood for eternity. To play with form, issues, ideas and not to be chastised for adventure or politics. Carol Churchill experiments, shifts, challenges and provokes with every play she writes. She has changed the way theatre can be. She probably has a lot to say on the matter but refuses to discuss her work in public. Her humility desires the work speaks for itself. I don't want to think too much about myself, she said. I would rather think about the things I'm thinking about. (laughs) if I have too much of a view of myself or if I think too much of what other people think of my work then it'll get in the way I've always left with a slightly horrible feeling after an interview I always feel that I've lied the whole time even when I've tried not to (laughs) Sarah Kane's first play Blasted also at the Royal Court was an extraordinary creation it shifted something for a generation of theatre goers that previously had been achieved only by Beckett Edward Bond and Carol Churchill The response to the play is now legendary. She's mad, said Michael Billington of The Guardian. Mm -hmm. A disgusting feast of filth, said Michael Coveney from the Daily Mail. Sarah was a young woman writing a response to the atrocities in Bosnia, the mass genocides, and to the world she saw around her. The play reflected only what we were watching in the news every day. The reviewer's response paralysed her. She was shocked, angry, and confused. I do not feel a responsibility towards the audience or to other women, she said. What I always do when I write is to think, how does the play affect myself? If you are very specific in what you try to achieve and it affects yourself, then it may affect other people too. On the other hand, if you have a target group in mind and you think, I want to affect the 11 million people watching ITV on Sunday, then everything becomes bland. Don't we know it? So for me, I'm quite happy to aim at the smallest audience possible, which is myself because I'm the only person who is definitely going to see this play anyway. (laughs) That's why I try to please myself. We at the Royal Court are currently working with women writers in Syria, the Ukraine, Nigeria, Lebanon, Palestine, all fighting to have their voices heard and to use theatre to understand the world around them, many of them needing to remain anonymous, because they are women and because of what they have to say. Tonight, we are opening a play by a 22-year-old Polish woman writer, In Poland, this play is a political act. Abortion is still illegal, and the main character has two. Thought four. In 1998, Sarah was running a writer's group with me at Payne's Plough. One of the writers dropped out of a reading, and over a few drinks, I persuaded Sarah to fill the gap. All right, she said, but only if I can write it under a pseudonym. I need to feel free. We came up with the name Marie Calverdon. She locked herself away for three days and came back with the beginnings of what was to become her classic play Crave. From this, I have to say, in inverted commas, mad and depraved woman, the first 30 pages ended with a speech. A speech so filled with humanity, with longing, with wit, with fun, with beauty, it takes your breath away. Quite literally, as there is no punctuation. (laughs) I will finish by losing my breath for you and by reading the monologue to you. And I want to play hide-and-seek and give you my clothes and tell you I like your shoes and sit on the steps while you take a bath and massage your neck and kiss your feet and hold your hand and go for a meal and not mind when you eat my food and meet you at Rudy's and talk about the day and type your letters and carry your boxes and laugh at your paranoia and give you tapes you don't listen to and watch great films and watch terrible films and complain about the radio and take pictures of you when you're sleeping and get up to fetch you coffee and bagels and Danish and go to Florent and drink coffee at midnight and have you steal my cigarettes and never be able to find a match and tell you about the program I saw the night before and take you to the eye hospital and not laugh at your jokes and want you in the morning but let you sleep for a while and kiss your back and stroke your skin and tell you how much I love your hair, your eyes, your lips, your neck, your breast, your ass, your... And sit on the step smoking till your neighbour comes home, and sit on the step smoking till you come home, and worry when you're late, and be amazed when you're early, and give you sunflowers, and go to your party, and dance till I'm black, and be sorry when I'm wrong, and happy when you forgive me, and look at your photos and wish I'd known you forever, and hear your voice in my ear, and feel your skin on my skin, and get scared when you're angry, and your eye has gone red, and the other eye blue, and your hair to the left, and your face oriental, and tell you you're gorgeous, and hug you when you're anxious, and hold you when you hurt, and want. You when I smell you and offend you when I touch you and whimper when I'm next to you and whimper when I'm not and dribble on your breast and smother you in the night and get cold when you take the blanket and hot when you don't and melt when you smile and dissolve when you laugh and not understand why you think I'm rejecting you when I'm not rejecting you and wonder how you think I could ever reject you and wonder who you are but accept you anyway and tell you about the tree angel enchanted forest boy who flew across the ocean because he loved you and write poems for you and wonder why you don't believe me and have a feeling so deep. I can't find words for it I want to buy you a kitten I'd get jealous of because it would get more attention than me (laughs) and keep you in bed when you have to go and cry like a baby when you finally do and get rid of the roaches and buy you presents you don't want and take them away again and ask you to marry me and you say no again but keep on asking because though you think I don't mean it I do always have from the first time I asked you and wander the city thinking it's empty without you and want what you want and think I'm losing myself but now I'm safe with you and tell you the worst of me and try to give you the best of me because you don't deserve any less and answer your questions when I'd rather not and tell you the truth when I really don't want to and try to be honest because I know you prefer it and think it's all over but hang on in for just ten minutes more before you throw me out of your life and forget who I am and try to get closer to you because it's beautiful learning to know you and well worth the effort And speak German to you badly and Hebrew to you worse, and make love with you at three in the morning, and somehow, somehow, somehow communicate some of the overwhelming, undying, overpowering, unconditional, all encompassing, heart enriching, mind expanding, ongoing, never ending love I have for you.
0: Terrific. I need to move the lump out of my throat. I don't know about the rest of you. Um, I'd be very happy now if members of our panel would like to discuss with each other, but if not, we're going to open up. Are there things you'd like to pick up from each other's talk? Not especially. I'd be happy then to to open up to the audience if people would like to make comments, ask questions, discuss. Uh, Yes, Is there anybody in the audience? Yeah. Halfway up. There's a microphone coming.
10: Thank you. Can you hear? Yeah. I've been a feminist for a long time, and I'm generally a very optimistic person, but yesterday, reflecting on various items in the news, I felt really low and sad about the situation of women. Um, And some of the reasons were... Um, the behavior of Chris Hewn in relation to his speeding tickets, um, the fact that his ex-wife, Vicky Price, uh, one of her defenses or her only defense is marital coercion, um, the situation about the former um, head of the Lib Dems, Lord Penning, Penning or something... Um, and all these allegations against him um, and the way they've been dealt with. So it looks like those women who were apparently harassed um, and molested by him didn't feel able to be um, heard in public or, or not be anonymous. And as with the Jimmy Savile affair, those in power in the, the party, what did they do? They went and talked to him and said, did you do this? And when he said, no, of course I didn't, they went away and left him. Um, and he then was able to retire on grounds of ill health. Um, also thinking about the the, um, the conviction yesterday of a man who murdered... Um, ...a female vet in her home in Wales... ...and um, the situation that he set up was that he was having a relationship... ...with the woman she shared her accommodation with... ...and knowing that the woman he had a relationship with was going to be away... ...he went to the, the, the vet's home and brutally murdered her... ...he had a long history of convictions for sexual violence... And I was left wondering, why would any woman form and maintain a relationship with a, a man with a history like that? And then hearing a, a, an item on the radio about the, the, the level of domestic violence and rape in South Africa and knowing that sexual abuse and rape are used throughout the world, even as we speak, in, in war and insurgency. So, as I say, I yesterday was feeling really so, so low about the sort of situation of women in this world after all the, the sort of apparent progress has been made. So I would really like comments from the people on the panel about what I've just described and their own feelings. And if you can provide me with any, anything to counterbalance all that horrible negativity... What makes you hopeful about women's situation and the apparent um, progress we are supposed to have made? Thank you. Uh, Quite a long, depressing dialogue.
0: (laughs) uh, But you said yesterday, and let's hope that today will push us into something more positive. I, I hope that we do. What we're trying to do here is some sort of celebration, I hope, and the way that women can write history and draw attention to these things, which our panelists have already noted. So maybe one or other of you would like to take up any of the
3: items?
5: Well, I mean, I, I, I'm sure we all share that. It um, it does seem to be rather depressing, um, particularly at the moment, and I think most people in this room will have known about the one billion rising um, campaign that happened um, on the 14th of February um, organized and um, well encouraged and organized by Eve Ensler playwright with monologues. Um, and it was for women all over the world to dance um, as, a, as, a, as a refusal in a funny sort of way to always be seen as victims of violence even though it was true. What was I think depressing for most, most of us who were supporting that either actively or from the sidelines was that it wasn't on any news channel at all Um, it was covered in Guardian and a couple of other places and of course what was on the front page instead the next day was the shooting of a young model actress in South Africa Um, and we all know how that story played out but this is I think exactly what you are saying. why we're all here the truth is that the people who behave like that do these things are criminals and men and women who are not criminals need to say this isn't good enough and keep saying it. And actually, everything that we're doing in terms of art, theatre, writing books, each of you um, coming here, thinking about these things, many people in this room, even 50 years ago, would not be allowed to be in here. But we're here today. Um, and so I think, I mean, I'm always overly chirpy, <laughs> or possibly the face of, all of these things. And I agree, it's very depressing. But I think it's more that. Always remember the things that have got better whilst at the same time seeing the things that are grim. And when people say it's all been done, there's nothing left to do, keep saying, with a smile on our faces, all of us, I would suggest, you know what, (laughs) not quite finished yet. Um, Because until anybody, whatever, whether they're men or women, whatever their colour, whatever their religion or none, till everybody can be valued for what they are doing, and that's it you know, you stand or fall by what you create and who you are and how you behave, not where you're born and whether you're allowed to do this or do that, then the project is not finished. So that's quite a big project. Um, but, you know, you know you're know, you going to find exactly what you're saying with the Women's Library being here. It's the most in- incredibly important thing. Actually, you know, in France, for example, in 1944, women didn't have the vote. And things don't change in we all change them. But we do have to... Keep on smiling despite all of that. So I hope you feel a bit less miserable today.
0: Okay, we have another comment. You.
5: Yeah, I also think that
9: um, I feel at saturation point as well at the moment over the last few weeks so with of what's happening to women. And it's kind of, I, I'm kind of focusing on a kind of renewed vigour to remember the kind of feminism I felt at 18 when I first went to university. Um, and, you know, for me, kind of women in the arts at that point were the brilliant Brontes and, and Jane Austen. And then a kind of world was unpacked for me, which was kind of from Andrea Dworkin to Maya Angelou to many other brilliant women. Um, and, and it gave me a kind of fire in my belly. And actually, it's naive of me to have allowed that fire to go away, to think that mm-hmm. things have changed since I was 18. Um, and I, what's happening at the moment is that people are actually speaking out again yep. about what happened to them, what happened to those secretaries and those parliamentary aides, what happened to those children, young people around Jimmy Savile. And that's why we've reached a saturation point. But it's actually because they have a voice and um, I think it's our job to become a strong movement again and to not let those people have the
4: power. Yeah. Mary. Yeah. <laughs> Mary. Yeah, I just wanted to add um, one quotation from a book by Gillian Rose called Love's Work. And the quotation is, keep your mind in hell and despair not. And it seems to me absolutely apt for discourses and discussions about progress because I actually think that progress can be hugely disempowering because in, in, ch- in the actual in yes. talking about achieved events yes. we take away the dynamic of the relations that create yes. inequality that, cre- that actually create and give credence to differences mm-hmm. in power so I think we actually have to think about how the very idea of progress is for women, and for for lots of other people in the world as well, a very disempowering narrative of the 21st Well, indeed, the 20th and the 21st century.
2: I absolutely agree with you, Mary. I think that this is what makes revolutions fail, that you think that a revolution is a singular event, and then you've won it, and we will live in utopia from then on. And we all know that it's not like that. It's actually a struggle that you have to fight for every day. In terms of what gives me hope, who inspires me, it's the women in Delhi who are protesting against rape culture there. It's the women in Tahrir Square who are seeing their friends and neighbors and loved ones um, terrified to leave the house because of gang rape and are then marching, holding knives aloft, and saying, no, this will not stand. It's the acts of bravery and solidarity and disobedience. That, that's what gives me courage. And no, we don't live in a utopia. No, there are many, many horrors, but the struggle is a powerful thing.
0: shall we go for more comments it occurs to me that as we're doing women writing history one of the things we might think about here is how our age will be portrayed so while we're saying that it may be depressing what we see now how do we think this will be portrayed in art or writing or theatre does anybody have any comments yeah just behind thank you it was
11: a, a separate question, is that okay? That's fine. It's um, fine. I think there was a really important point that the panel raised about the selection um, of art and artists, or more to the point, the non-selection of women art, uh, female mm-hmm. art, and um, art produced by women and women artists, and how that becomes a political act, um, either deliberately or through negligence. Um, and I think... hopefully we're coming to the time where that political act can be drawn to people's attention as you were saying Kate but in my own experience as a writer trying to tell untold stories I find that the new barrier put up is um, it's not commercial (laughs) who's going to pay for this who's going to buy it and that seems to be the new barrier to try and block those untold stories how should we deal with that new challenge that women's writing and women's stories are not commercial
9: I mean, in theatre, uh, for the moment, subsidy still exists, so we don't seek commercial stories to tell um, in the world of new writing. We seek the voices that need to tell the stories that we need to hear, and hopefully out of those, over a period of time, some of them will make us enough money to continue, but we don't need them all to. So um, I think uh, there's, you know, that's one of the things why we have to kind of keep public subsidy... Uh, really is really vital to things not having to be a kind of commercial imperative. I worked in television for years, and that was always the question. Well, it was the thing that Sarah Kane says. You know, are 12 p- million people going to watch this on a Sunday night? Um, what medium do you write in? Um, I write creative nonfiction and kind of um, op-ed and um, journalism. Uh, the journalism's a whole other story, isn't it? <laughs> yes, gen.
5: Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. Actually, that I think that um, that in some ways things that would have been um, accepted as normal almost um, in the 70s, people would easily say, "Oh, we don't want stuff by women. Oh, we don't want to hear what people in China have got." That you know, they would say quite blatantly sexist and racist things, and nobody batted an eyelid. Now, actually, there has been a different sort of discourse, and so people know they're not supposed to say those things. They might be thinking them, but they know they're not supposed to say them. And therefore, they say other things instead, absolutely, I think, which is, this is not commercial or whatever. The thing that is is much easier about writing compared to anything else, particularly for women in classical music or women in theatre or whatever, that that whole idea of um, a work of art coming to life once it's put on or performed or viewed, is really important. With writing, if you have written it, it exists. It is a piece of art. Yeah. And that is the one benefit those of us who are writers have on our side, that we can keep producing our work, even if we haven't yet got a market that's out there for it. An awful lot of the time now with the Internet, the one, for me, the, one of the very few positive things about the Internet, is that you can start to disseminate work out in a much wider way, start to have dialogues. you know there are lots of particularly feminist websites with Jezebel in America in particular, where people are sharing different sorts of writing and we haven 't seen the consequences of that yet, but I think actually in about twenty years' time, we will have a much more exciting uh, publishing environment in terms of form and idea at the moment, it is quite um, publishing is more concerned about the, the way in which the stories are put across whether it's a print version or an ebook version or a download or whatever than they are actually about the imagination within the work itself um, which is understandable because we're in a big time so it, it, there's no easy answer to that but publishing on the internet and sharing your work is a really good way of doing it because agents and newspaper editors and all of these things they look at that and a lot of the way into publishing at the moment is coming from self-published books where publishers are suddenly going oh. Lots of people have looked at this. And so there is a more democratic way, hopefully, of trying to... And very good luck.
2: I want to read your stories. <laughs> I think that um, the way to fight it is with facts. Very often, women's voices, the voices of people of colour, uh, queer voices, are presumed to be uncommercial. And when they do succeed, their success is blamed on something else. When a movie with a male protagonist um, succeeds... You know, that's fine. When a, woman, when a movie with female protagonist succeeds, oh, it was for another reason. When a movie with female protagonist fails, it was because it had a woman starring it. I think that we have to create our own audiences, we have to create our own success stories, and we have to use the previously established success stories to fight the narrative that our voices aren't commercial and that people don't want to hear us.
4: Yeah, um, yeah I agree with all that. I just wanted to raise the issue of the the term commercial, because I think if we think in terms of the day job, um, most people are going to have to keep the day job. You know, that's just the reality of of doing a lot of creative work. So what I wanted to raise was actually something which comes out of um, the readings that we've had, the the, the letters that were exchanged between those two women in writing in the 19th century. And I just want to raise the issue through that of context. Of actually writing, talking, speaking, having having discussions with people, is also a form I think of working out connections of being creative. Those connections then connect with other people who are doing other things. So yes, of course, published works, seen art on the gallery walls is really really important. But there's also something I think. That we also want to be aware of that if we think too much about what you might describe as those tall silos of culture, we actually are in danger of losing those other possibilities of a creative culture, a culture of the grassroots, a culture of people talking to each other, a t- people of talking within contexts, indeed, of their jobs, where perhaps they're not allowed to talk, but opening up some more spaces rather than just the traditional ones.
9: Can I just respond to that? Because mm. I don't agree with you, if that's right, <laughs>
1: um,
9: Because I, think it's, I do agree with the final part about um, opening up the kind of new spaces, and I think that's really vital. But actually, I think that it's, it's right to be allowed to be ambitious as an artist. Because I wasn't born a theatre director. I was born, my dad's a chemical engineer and my mum's a nurse. And, and I, they made me believe that I could become what I am able to do today. And I think it's important that we... I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I know I'm slightly misinterpreting for my own purposes, but you know, that we don't... That, that's what we all do, isn't it? Um, but that we don't allow ourselves to create our own glass ceiling. I hate that word. But glass ceiling as a result of that. Okay. Um, about saying, actually, I want to be whatever the best means. I want to be that. And I want to be able to have my
2: voice heard. And the truth is, many sorts of art can't be performed to their ultimate level if you have a day job. Yeah. Diego Rivera could not have done the Palacio Nacional after he you know, put in eight hours as a truck driver. There are some things that just require so much in terms of time and in terms of resources that you need to be supported and you need to give it your all. And I think that um, one of the reasons women in art have been so... Um, so limited, and there, there are so few of them, is that women didn't get those resources. Mm-hmm. So while I, I love art in daily life, I love writing in daily life, I, I love grassroots work, I love what people produce in their off hours, and I think everyone should have access to culture, we also need to support people who do that full time. Yeah, that's a
0: good yeah. point. We have a comment on, beside the red coat there. <clears throat>
9: Hi. Um,
12: So in terms of the way that possibly this era is going to be remembered and also um, talking about that saturation point that you feel like you've um, that you're, you're experiencing in the media with the way that women are being portrayed as victims or as sort of additions to another man's achievements. How much do you feel that that is influenced by, at least in Britain, by the Conservative agenda? I'm specifically interested in, Molly, your opinion, because you, I don't know exactly how much time you spend in London, but I'm interested in an outsider's opinion on that reading of that history and how much this era is going to be influenced by... By those sets of values in in future times to come, and also what pockets of um, hopeful creativity you all have, are experiencing in Britain and around the world, that people will say, "Oh, th- that may have happened in that time, but look what came out of it," just like the suffragettes and just like the actresses' league that you were talking about.
2: For for one thing, um, I spend I would say I spend five days every two months in Britain, so I have a very a very outsider's opinion of it. Um, your political culture, at its worst, um, is still more mature and adult than so much of America.
6: <laughs> I mean, I, I just can't
2: imagine any of your politicians—and correct me if I'm wrong—saying some girls rape easy, and that's where American politicians are. Um, so I'm, I'm actually hopeful for you guys, even with um, you know all the elitism and bastardry that um, is you know in the Tory Party. Um, I am hopeful that this is the era where we finally break through. I think we're seeing it in America where the Tea Party tried to run on an incredibly marginalizing agenda to to everyone, but to women especially, and were so roundly trounced and laughed out of town that they probably would try to run that again. I think that um, we're seeing it whenever a company puts out a sexist T-shirt. They're immediately boycotted and they're they're taught that behavior isn't acceptable. I think we're, I hope that at least in some countries we're in the dark days before the light. Mm
5: -hmm. I, I, don't, I don't think it is actually anything to do with a con, conservative agenda, either with a small or a, a big C. Um, I, I think that what is most depressing, I think, for many of us, and it's back to the lady's comment earlier, was that after all this hoo-ha of the Levinson inquiry and the media and all the rest of it, and we all know it's about vested interests and it's about money, it isn't about politics. I mean, who knows what any of them vote? It's about their own self-interest. Um, that it was still possible to have that sun headline the day after Reva had been um, murdered with that picture of her in a bikini. And, I mean, that was pornography. There's no interpretation you could have on it other than that, and yet still that happened. And why? Because that is selling papers. Um, So so I think that that, oddly, is the issue. And what is interesting at the moment is that whether it's the vote on women bishops or, indeed, on gay marriage, the people are lining up in a, I agree absolutely with Molly in a way, in quite a sophisticated way that I know people that voted for and anti both of those things and oddly they weren't necessarily conservative voters or Labour voters or Green voters they, it was something to do with an illiberalism rather than liberalism and I think that is what might come out of this period of time that actually we've talked a lot about the traditional ways breaking down but actually all you see is that people who are revolting and behave badly, guess what? They're in every walk of life. This is not news. Um, So the minute we actually start to judge people by how they behave, not what team they're on, then actually things start to change. And I think that is what we might see. The Green Revolution didn't quite change things in the way people thought. The student revolutions were, in the end, neutralised very cleverly by the media and politicians. But now maybe. Now maybe there will just be different sorts of alliances and maybe more fluid ones. And out of that... I think there will be some great art, because actually it's almost always the artists that are asking the questions, whether it's Sarah Kane, you know, actually saying, this is not right. Um, and I think we'll start to see, I hope, more work about sexual violence, because we've seen very little of that, yeah. except in smaller independent companies. Yeah. It's not being put on in some of the bigger companies, yeah. but I think it will start to penetrate through to become part of a national discussion. I've
0: got another uh, comment or question Just
13: beside you, right beside you. Thank you. Um, You mustn't let we men get away with it. It's quite easy. And uh, you're talking about it through artistic means, and you've hardly touched on political means, which I think the last questioner was alluding to. Um, Surely the laws of the country are made by politicians, And I think it was Vicky who said there's only 18.3% elected representatives throughout the world that are women. Now, I suggest that you do get active politically, and as Kate was saying, not only being active artistically, but also politically. And these shifts that happen in society are really done through major major small events, no, major events, and I'm thinking particularly in Russia of Pussy Riot, where they, they were able to get their point of view across very actively throughout the world by being, as I say, active and not just passive, not just sitting in a cozy room in the LSE talking about it, but actually being out there and getting active. And as I say, don't let, get, don't let us get away with it all the time.
2: I think it's interesting that uh, you presume that we weren't politically active as well oh, as artistically yeah. active. I was arrested at Occupy Wall Street. Um, I'm someone who's taken part in many demonstrations. I can't speak for my co-panelists, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that I'm sure that their political involvement is similar. Um, just because we're focusing on um, the artistic dimensions of our work now doesn't mean we don't also do other things.
9: And the reason that I. W- And I, and I, you know, I think for me that um, the, the, the kind of, the, the world that I've chosen to go into, or have been able to go into in terms of theatre, is about a kind of collaborative live act, a communal live act that we all kind of undertake together in a kind of contract between audience and performer, and, and that there is an ability there viscerally to really make change happen. Um, because you can have an experience that you wouldn't otherwise happen. So I feel that the kind of act of theatre is a political act, and personally, I've always taken that outside the theatre space as well. So I, I kind of, with you, I think it's a, a really interesting presumption that we actually live in this cosy room at LSE because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I just
0: very quickly now because I'm going to have to wrap up.
5: This um, I think also it comes back to, I, I agree with the not letting men get away with it, but I think that that is men also not letting other men get away with it because I think this whole idea that somehow all men are over there and all women over there is obviously ludicrous and you know it's the same with anything, whether it's faith-based hatred or anything else. The people who do criminal acts are criminals and that's it and we should treat them as such and, and see it in that sort of light. I think the point about... Active politics, yes. Also, I suspect all of us are, but have been or are active politically as well as for our work. But I think that it's incredibly important to understand that not everybody has it, either in their opportunity or their um, their character or their personal situation, to to be politically active or make a difference in terms of changing laws. But they might write the piece of theatre that changes everything. That every single child that sees it thinks that's right I don't have to put up with this so I think that for, for me politics has always been about um, each of us looking in our own hearts and deciding what we can do whatever that is and doing it and being proud of that attempt and you know my, I live with my mother and my mother-in-law and they are both in their 80s and they have very different politics and neither of them would ever have called themselves a feminist until the last election when they said <laughs> you know It's a bit much. There's just no women. I went. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) And so it's never too late. (laughs) That's very good.
0: And it gives me, I'm really sorry, an opportunity. I'm afraid I'm looking at the clock and I'm going to have to uh, wind us up um, from our cozy room, as it were. I hope that you've uh, enjoyed uh, the quilt, as I like to think of it, that we've put together here. There have been all kinds of different uh, presentations, different speeches different talks and I want to thank a few people before we finish and I'm going to finish on a political note. So um, I want to thank the LSE Gender Institute and my colleagues in library services particularly Sue Donnelly have helped to get together these readings which I hope you enjoyed and I think our students gave a really good view of women through the ages there and opinions. Um, I want to thank you for your contributions and attentive listening in the audience Um, And I want to thank our panelists, Molly, Mary, Kate, and Vicky, uh, for all their contributions. And I want to end with something from uh, the Women's Library. And some people are going to have to forgive me because they have heard me say this at a celebration we had last night in another cozy room in LSE. Um, Let's remember seriously remember that it is only a hundred years ago that women were fighting for the vote in this country that is an incredibly short space of time and this year is a very important year for us to commemorate that with the centenary of the death of emily wilding davison what i'm going to do is to read you a letter that was published in the daily telegraph yesterday a hundred years ago sir Everyone seems to agree upon the necessity of putting a stop to suffragist outrages, but no one seems certain how to do so. There are two, and only two, ways in which this can be done. Both will be effectual. One, kill every woman in the United Kingdom. (laughs) Two, give women the vote. (laughs) Yours truly, Bertha Brewster.